0: Obsessed the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 361 is recorded live March 15th, 2018. Welcome back to Scoop Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I can't pronounce Southwest. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing very well. I'm enjoying the sunny weather, even though we did have snow. What three times in a row this? week?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's like I would I would uh, wake up in the morning and there'd be snow, and I'd be thinking, "What the heck's going on? I didn't have snow, and I went to bed." And then you get out of work and the snow's all gone under, other than what's under your vehicle.
1: Yep. I think, what, Tuesday was ice. Oh, that
0: was that was pretty slippery. Yep. It's one of those where you, you, you get out of the vehicle and you have to kind of uh, test the ground to make sure you don't go flying under your butt. Absolutely. Well, kind of light in the chat room, I think we scared everybody off uh, last week when we didn't have an episode. Uh, just to fill everybody in, we had I had my robotics competition with the... the first robotics team that my son belongs to and they they did quite well they end up uh, uh their alliance uh won the event which puts us in good shape for our next event in about three weeks so there'll be another uh, couple weeks actually in a row where we won't have an episode uh, then we'll have another week on and then another week off if we get lucky enough to qualify for worlds but I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in I'd like to thank all our patreon supporters uh, we haven't been calling it out, but we did get some people signing up, and it, it's, it really is helpful. We could use some more help, though. Uh, costs keep coming in, and uh, we we have this great juggernaut that is the podcast to keep going. So if you could head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, click on the Patreon link, and you know just the price of a cup of coffee or whatever value you're getting for the program, if you could donate that, we'd certainly appreciate it. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, The first article we have up is actually a follow-up, which uh, it's great when we can do that to let people know what had happened. The last ship to bring slaves to the U.S. has not been found. In 1860, slave smugglers burned the Clotildea to hide their crimes. Promising recent find has turned out to not be the vessel's remains. It was 52 years after the U.S. had banned international slave trade when Timothy Mayer, a wealthy slave-owning planter, boasted that he could smuggle in a ship full of slaves. Historical documents indicate that he hatched the plan with a ship captain, William Foster, on July 7, 1860. Uh, The Clotilda? Clotilda? It's one of those things when somebody says it, you go, oh, of course that's what it is. Uh, They entered the Mobile Bay carrying 103 slaves, it be the last known time slave owners sailed an African slave ship to the U.S. to hide the evidence of their crime. The crew set the vessel on fire after the human cargo was removed. For more than a century, the remains have been a mystery, thanks to reporting from the Alabama news outlet and uh, preliminary investigations by archaeologists, the ship was thought to have been found in January 2018, but since subsequent research didn't bear that out. Uh, when a storm hit the coast earlier in the winter, many were concerned with flooding and record low temperatures. Uh, the Mobile-Tinsaw Delta a few miles just north of Mobile, Alabama. The, the weather forced temperatures down to 25 degrees Fahrenheit, cold for the region, and the strong winds made the tides typically low in January even lower. Ben Raines, a reporter from AL.com, knew it would be the perfect time to shir- the search for the ship's remains. An investigative reporter by profession, a boat captain by a hobby, He's familiar with the Delta, and during the phone conversation, he doesn't skip a beat telling uh, how biodiverse the region is. He's been searching for the vessel since October. A local man whose family has lived in the area since the 1800s tipped him off to where the rumored ship was thought to be. It definitely was looking for it, he said. And his effort paid off. He saw 19th century remains jutting from the swamp smooth mud on January's uh, New Year's Day. In January, it looked like a dinosaur backbone, and one end was a big lump. The storeboard side of the ship was fully exposed in low tide. The port side was almost entirely concealed in mud. Immediately, the part-time ship captain knew he was looking at an old historic shipwreck. In a strong hunch, it was the slave ship. After reporting to find the archaeologist from the University of South Alabama, he was put in touch with two our underwater archaeologist experts from the University of West Florida, Gregory Cook and John Bratton. Rain shared the photos and videos he took in the site. by January 14th, Cook and Bratton were in the Mobile Tensaw Delta. We could clearly see the typical parts of the wooden sailing ship and the stub of a mast, says Cook. By visually assessing the remains, they could see it was constructed from a style consistent with the slave ship they were looking for, a mid-19th century schooner. Part of the planks had burn marks and the location matches the journal kept by Captain Foster. Uh, We can't say it definitely is a ship, but certainly worth an investigation, says Bratton. Let me see if we can get to this. And they go on and on and on. How did they, did you see how they thought it wasn't it?
1: Oh, they didn't reference that.
0: So that's the whole thing, is it's not it, but this is like the article as if it was it.
1: I'm double-checking something. Let me look here.
0: Yeah, the only thing is they have a little tiny blurb. So what they did is they edited the the old article, and it says the remains thought to have been the vessel in January now thought to be from another larger ship from the same century. This is almost the same article we had before. It's only the heading that says it's not. So yeah, I guess nobody wants to promote that they were wrong.
1: I'm just looking at the picture, though. It's not unusual to find wreckage like that on the shorelines, Mm -hmm. and that always makes me wonder. Why is it worthwhile to pick through now?
0: Yeah, I, well, it keeps keeps people busy. I
1: mean, I you can go up north of us, uh, just two seaports, and I can know you remnants just like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, one thing is it's local, and they're making a big deal because of the story.
1: And that I think didn't pan out.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and sometimes I think it's fun to actually research something and then say, I think I can find it, and actually find it.
1: That's true too.
0: Here we have an article from the BBC News in October. Diver dies in Scapa Flow accident. A diver has died following an accident in Scapa Flow on Orkney. The 53-year-old man who has not been named is exploring the wreck of the World War I German battleship Margraf when he experienced problems. Two Coast Guard teams took him ashore, but he died before reaching the hospital. The battleship lies in 45 meters of water. is one of the most popular sports diving sites in Scapa Flow. Is a second diver fatality in the area in less than two weeks. Coast Guard spokesman said, we have teams from Kirkwall and Stromness who were asked to assist. We were just called after 9 a.m. Police Scotland said there are no suspicious circumstances surrounding the man's death, and the report would be submitted to the prosecutor fiscal. That's an odd name for a prosecutor. It probably means something over there. Doesn't mean anything to us over here. In the previous incident on the 6th of October, a boat north of East Cave lighthouse reported one of the divers fifteen minutes overdue, and mayday was issued to all nearby vessels. The man body was later recovered from the water. See, at forty five wow. meters, that puts you just a little bit deeper than sports. One hundred fifty feet. Yeah, yeah. 150, so
1: 160 feet. So you're, you're cold and dark.
0: Yep, and you're getting in, and there. I bet you get, you can get some good currents there too.
1: Right. Well, the first one was sixty four years old, so one it could be, you know, a physical aspect. Which quite often it appears to be when we do get older, like, but it didn't really give a lot of details. And I wish they had at least, you know, given us something. Mm-hmm. And it said, you know, the body was recovered, but it didn't say on the surface or beneath the waters. And yeah. they had, you know, called a May when it was 15 minutes past when the guy should have been on board and didn't go into any details of how they recovered him or where other than he was recovered.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't give a whole lot of detail that way.
1: But Scapa Flow is an interesting place.
0: Yeah. It's one of those I'd love to get to someday, do some dives
1: Well, the picture itself, even though it wasn't a Brex, was of the area, and that's a wild and woolly place.
0: And then here we have one out of Wisconsin, and this one came as a little bit of surprise for me, to me. Uh, You'd like to know what is the full story on this. Uh, This is from the Journal Sentinel Online, or the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which Before my company got bought out, that was my sister company. Uh, Governor Scott Walker's decision to rescind the state's application for a National Marine Sanctuary was a cause for celebration for many lakefront homeowners, but was also a devastating blow to some community leaders who have been working on the project for the past four years. The National Oceanic, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has proposed creating a National Marine Sanctuary spanning more than 80 miles of Lake Michigan coast from Mequon to two rivers. The sanctuary was intended to protect 37 shipwrecks, 122 reported vessel losses. After initially supporting the sanctuary, Walker surprised local leaders when he sent a letter on February 27th to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration announcing his decision to rescind the state's nomination for the sanctuary. Port Washington Mayor Tom Malda said he was shocked when he received the letter. For the past four years, we have in good faith engaged in a very public dialogue. Now completely out of the blue, in an email that surprised all of us, the governor effectively shut down that dialogue. Walda said that he and other sanctuary supporters in Ozaukee, Sheboygan, Manitowoc counties were aggressively trying to secure a sit-down conversation with Walker. I sure like to think that with the investment of some and resources we put in this at the community level, that it warrants a conversation with the governor in terms of why he pivoted away from support of local efforts. Kevin Belvin, acting director of public affairs for NOAA, NOAA's no, uh, National Ocean Service said the agency has reviewed Walker's letters considering the next steps. Supporters for Lake Michigan Sanctuary included federal and state politicians, universities, museums, tourism councils and businesses. Walker himself initially supported the idea of the sanctuary when he first applied to NOAA for consideration in December 2014. When it started out as an 875 square mile sanctuary, later grew to post 1075 square miles. The coverage area expanded to include uh, Mequon. After years of supporting the project, Walker sent a letter to Noah in September with numerous detailed questions about the scope of the federal government's authority and how it would affect homeowners' riparian rights. NOAA responded to each of the Walker's questions in November. In the letter, NOAA stated that sanctuary designation would not change existing uh, riparian rights for the property owners of Wisconsin, nor would it change the state law regarding public access to the area which shoreline property owners have exclusive access. His letter rescinding the sanctuary nomination, Walker noted that Wisconsin's historical society is already charged with protecting the state's submerged culture resources that Wisconsin shipwrecks are already protected under federal law. Walker said the designation of a national marine sanctuary would create further unnecessary bureaucratic red tape in addition to a new level of government for citizens to petition for permits and certifications for normal use of Lake Michigan is too much of a trade off for the negligible benefit to protecting shipwrecks, he wrote. Wisconsin has and will continue to protect our submerged cultural resources.
1: Well, I'm glad he did it personally. A thousand miles, square miles?
0: Yeah, that's what uh, I think that this article probably picked. Uh, a few of the quotes to make it sound like he just like was just changing his mind, but that's always been my question: Is what are you going to get with this that you wouldn't get otherwise? Why does Noah have to be involved?
1: Well, I like the last three paragraphs. That basically told you, you, know, they've already got somebody charged with protecting the wreck or submerged cultural resources. It would further create unnecessary bureaucratic red tape, absolutely, and a new level of government for citizens to petition for permits. And why? And by, by the same token, when they say protect, we both know you can't protect the wreck. Environment will destroy them. Right. Most divers already have the culture. The newer divers have the culture of don't take anything. So what's left?
0: Yeah. they wasn't like they were going to set up a preserve police force and patrol it and make sure something wasn't going to happen.
1: Well, you know, that's like patrolling the Havana. Why would you do that? <laughs> it's a rubble wreck. I'm, yep. you know, all well and good, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: but I, I, how many preserves does Michigan have? 11? Yeah. Civilian funded, meaning not by the public or, you know, not by taxes or anything like that. Yep. And it's hard to maintain them. It's hard to do anything with them. Oh yeah. The simple act of getting buoys on them, <laughs> which is- would increase revenue, you know, it would create tourism. It, you know, wherever the boats come from there, people are paying money for the gas. They're going to get lodging, maybe. Uh, again, how does being that a preserve make a difference?
0: No, it doesn't.
1: Right, but the preserve does, and is probably in our area the only active group trying to at least buoy them, make them accessible to other people, so they can at least dive them. Right, so, and I mean the preserve the way it's being done up here, I, I like it because they're trying to buoy it so you can use it, but you know you can't protect them. Yeah, and Mother Nature is sure going to do her. Her work.
0: Well, they can write her a ticket.
1: Yeah, yeah, she'll pay you back too. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then uh, we, we have a couple articles from Dan. uh Diving incident reports. We have a diver lost his balance and his finger. A diver fell overboard and caught his ring on a cleat. I was wearing my dive equipment at a platform in the back of the boat, and my buddy was already in the water waiting for me. A speedboat passed by, and I got a wave rocked in the boat. When I got unbalanced, fell in the water. During my fall, my Left hand was caught on the edge of the boat by the cleat. My finger was severed, torn off by my hand and my and by the ring I was wearing. And then there's a comment. It says this type of amputation or degloving injury is extremely rare and is usually associated with manual occupations such as the construction industry and the military. From jumping out the back of trucks, common methods to prevent this type of injuries to wear a soft rubber ring instead of a metal ring, or to remove the ring and wear something else. As Uh, such as a thin chain around the neck or from a string cord with a breakable link like an O-ring to reduce the risk of the wearer being garroted should the string latinus be caught on something. First statement treatment includes wrapping the wound site in clean sterile moist dressings, applying pressure, and elevated the injured hand. Immediate medical assessment is also warranted if tissue... That was torn off as recovered, then it should be wrapped in clean, sterile, moist dressing and chilled, but not frozen or in direct contact with the ice. Reattachment or even partial reattachment may be possible. And then uh, they have an update where it says, incident follow-up, Dan is pleased to report the diver in the above incident had his fing- finger successfully reattached, is now almost fully recovered. In his own word- words, in Portuguese, he says, I am great now, but he also warns divers to be cautious when on board boats. And that, look I at it, about, that injury. Wow, look at that photo.
1: I was about to say, though, I don't think this was uh, here, or if it was, it was in warm water, because if you had gloves on, would that have happened?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, at least not that same way. You could have something else happen. But, yeah. Uh, I
1: think the biggest one we have is lines going through cleats and stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're not careful and you've got it, and you're, you are you got a wrap on your finger and it goes through a pulley, you can do some damage really quick. Yeah. Or but if you're hauling up the anchor line and you've got it through one of the the cleats and it slips back down, you can get a heck of a burn at the least. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, he he did it on a cleat. My grandmother actually was at a uh, U-pick, and you, you know those three-legged ladders that they have? Yeah. On one of those ladders, somebody had uh, nailed a nail into it, and just a little bit of the head was sticking out of the rung. And as she was climbing down, it caught her finger and did the exact same, well, not the exact same thing. Her finger didn't come off, but it did strip the skin quite a bit. Um, and when, when she went to the doctor, the doctor was trying to, to save the ring, and she's like, just cut the damn thing off.
1: <laughs> well, was, I know most people who are in places are going to get the ring. Well, I shouldn't say most. You can't ever tell when you're going to have that. Yes. One is you always have that slit in the backside that you can't see. Uh-huh. So if it catches, it'll break. Yep. That's one option. Um trying to think of the uh, the other option that we always used to have. It, at work, you can never wear a ring because if you're working on electrical equipment, oh, yeah. put your hand in some place, that's not a real good one. But I have accidentally walked by a door. You know where the little lock goes in? That uh-huh. little... Yep. And snagged my freaking finger on that. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I wasn't walking fast because I pulled up short, but that cut my finger also. Yeah. I mean, how do you, you know... What defense would I have against that? Yeah,
0: So you're saying we should all wear uh, lobster gloves, about 7 millimeter, when we're at home.
1: Well, I'm not saying anything, but, <laughs> I mean, it, it worked. If you moved a table and chair, you had to have gloves on to move it.
0: Yeah. Well, see, what I used to do, because uh, I, I, I don't wear a ring that frequently anymore, uh, but I used to, you know, I, I loved the clicking sound it would make. So I would, you know, you'd tap it on a, a surface or... And I would get it caught, like, on the top of chairs. You know, like, they have the post on the top of a chair. So I'd be tapping it, and then I'd go to get up, and, you know, I could I could snag that.
1: The idea of the, with a, a little nail out of a ladder, that, you know, that can happen too easily.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's— You know, the old
1: wooden ladders and stuff. Yep.
0: Yeah. And that and that's what happened to her. I mean, I can't tell you how many hundreds of times over the years she'd probably— because uh, I think it was cherries. It's was probably cherry season or something. And uh, you, know, you you come up and down, up and down, and you know somebody. I don't know if they were repairing the ladder or what, but there's this little head of a nail. Doesn't take
1: much. Makes my makes my skin crawl.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I yeah. wonder if the finger actually detached, meaning the bone also. It didn't show, but that was a really gory-looking finger put back together.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what they made it sound like. Uh, yeah. It's hard to tell with that with that photo. I mean, it. it yeah. That's a. Definitely a trauma there. And then we have another one from Dan, the Divers Alert Network. A diver was virtually swallowed by a whale shark. A clearly annoyed whale shark because attempting to, oh, appeared to attempt to swallow a, excuse me, a diver. Uncharacteristic behavior by a little-known gentle giant. 62-year-old female advanced open water diver and on a live board dive cruise. On this particular day, two dives were made at a single dive site where there are a large number of marine life, including four whale sharks a pod of dolphins and a sailfish. Diver safety briefing was given on the day of the dive regarding safety around marine creatures. During the first dive, there were no observations of odd behavior by any of the whale sharks. On the second dive, around 11 a.m., the diver made a backwards roll entry upon entering the sea, hit one of the whale sharks. The group of 10 divers, two guides, and eight recreational divers were spread out in the area in a depth of 10 meters or 33 feet, allowing the whale sharks to swim between them. During the dive, the largest whale shark in the area began to act differently. It appeared to be swimming directly at the divers with its mouth wide open as it would uh, get close to sharks it would open its mouth, but multiple divers were able to swim out of its path. After being in the water for 40 minutes, a diver was attempting to photograph this interaction of the whale shark and the other divers, and the whale shark turned and suddenly towards her. The diver recalls being hit hard by the whale shark. Then the diver was sucked into the mouth of the whale shark head headfirst Half-swallowed up to her thigh, the diver's struggle escaped the whale shark's mouth for a brief moment before the shark sped her out. Forcibly spinning her around in the water, she then swam to one of the guides. Upon assessment, of the diver had minor abrasions in the back of her hand. And the comment is the whale sharks are the world's largest fish and widely known as gentle giants. They are filter feeders, not predators unlike many other sharks. For many divers, alongside a whale shark's a natural habitat once-in-a-lifetime experience. Nonetheless, divers should always be aware of potential risk when diving around marine animals, especially large marine creatures such as sharks, regardless of uh, the preconceived notions of danger or safety. Most animals have the potential to inflict harm if they are distressed or threatened, as divers we are visitors or environment, should respect the space if the animal is clearly distressed or poses a likely threat, then divers should give more space. If the animal continues to be a danger, the danger and the should dive should be ended calmly with a normal ascent to ensure the safety of this Diver made. Lastly, always be aware of the surroundings and entry point. Look before entering the water. Uh, on that one, I blame the the uh, operators, you know, the dive masters. Well, if you're if you're being well, guided,
1: well, the first one is you rolled off the back of the boat and hit a shark. Excuse me, did you look where you were going?
0: I mean, what I, do you think? I, I well, I'm thinking you know, I I'm visualizing Michigan water. So unless the shark was within two feet of the surface. I that uh, could see that happening. But if it was clear and you could, you know, take a look to see what you're rolling into, then uh, yes. And also the I don't blame the shark at all because it, it I mean, it can be irritated. I mean, you just I mean, it, it just got clobbered by somebody rolling in on it.
1: You jump on my back with a tank, I'll be pissed.
0: Yeah. And then you you've also got to think of why were the dive masters not saying, hey, there's something not right here. This is not normal behavior. You would expect them, with the experience you had, what they had, to realize that this is not normal.
1: Well, if, you know, out there, if I'm looking at whale sharks and I see them around, I can't believe the visibility was such that you couldn't see a whale shark as big as it is under the boat at 10 feet. Because are you going to be diving in the midst of that if the visibility is less than 10 feet? I don't know. I don't think so. Would you? Do
0: a shark dive with no visibility?
1: Well, yeah, 10 feet. You
0: know, a few s- sharks
1: that are 30 and 40 feet big. You
0: know, yeah, uh, you just you just got to attach a few sardines to your belt, and they'll come in close enough for you to see them.
1: Well, obviously they did on her, but <laughs> the question I have is, where's the video? Yeah. I thought everybody had video for these. You would think so. Because
0: if there's video, you'd have already seen it on YouTube by now.
1: It would be great to do an interview with her to find out what she thought. And of course, I'm sure she was wearing a wet too, which was probably fortunate.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they don't say uh, really where they were. I think I think Dan likes to try and keep it vague to encourage people to report it because you are just trying to collect data.
1: Yeah, they are.
0: And then the next article we have up is a shipwreck from the Mar- Margaret or Allwill. I no said Orwell. No R in there. O L W I L L Allwill discovered in Lake Erie, 118 years after sinking off. Lorraine, and this article was fresh today. A 12-year-old steamer barge, Margaret Orwell, I want to say Orwell, uh, was carrying 900 tons of limestone and Captain John Brown's family from Kelly's Island to Cleveland when it struck a nor'easter in June 1899. Last July, the shipwreck was found in Lake Erie by the Cleveland Underwater Explorers Dive Team, working with the National Museum of the Great Lakes in Toledo. Diver Rob Rutschill had been searching the wreck for 29 years and combed over 60 miles of Lake Erie before discovering, the, discovering and scuba diving the ship. Brown, his wife, nine-year-old son, died in the wreck along with five others aboard. Museum announced the discovery Thursday. And uh, let's see, Rock the, rockthelake.com has the full story. Uh, uh, Ruchel says, when you first find the wreck that you're looking for, it's exciting. It's like climbing Mount Everest for the first time. The Toledo Mu- Museum also announced a discovery of two yet-to-be-identified shipwrecks in Lake Erie by Cleveland underwater explorers, also called Clue. The shipwreck vessel, partially broken up and buried in the sandy bottom, dubbed Ken Tiller's Wreck, was found July 2016. Say, I like this. They named it after the diver until they figure out who it is. Uh, a schooner with a bow, Samson post, and windlass exposed, with fishing nets wrapped around the windlass and a small amount of coal on the deck. The Great Lake holds secrets of about 8,000 shipwrecks, which I think is a little light. Uh, no one knows how many thousands are hidden in Lake Erie. The shadows and murkiest of the lakes, only about 375 of Lake Erie's wrecks have been found. They are schooners, freighters, steamships, tugs, fishing boats, and thanks to cold, fresh water, many of them are perfectly preserved. Often it can take years for the initial discovery of potential underwater target to confirm the that the target in question is a shipwreck. To identify a particular shipwreck as a specific named boat that was lost, the museum says the task requires sophisticated underwater technology such as side-scan sonar, but also historical research. For the past 13 years, Cleveland's underwater explorers have been have collaborated with National Museum of the Great Lakes to locate and identify shipwrecks in Lake Erie. In 2015, explorers discovered and identified the Argo, a tanker barge lost in 1937 that held much of its original toxic cargo. This discovery initiated a $6 million federal cleanup, the largest ever of a shipwreck. Clue is the best group of volunteer researchers, technician, divers currently searching for shipwrecks in Lake Erie, according to Executive Director Christopher Gilcrest in a press release. The Margaret Allwill was built in 1887, rebuilt in 1890 as a propeller, and in 1893 as a steam barge. The remains identified in July by the vertical steeple steam engine in the stern. The wreckage includes a 14-foot stem, a steel windlass, and two anchor chains. Support rails up and has four of the deck house framing posts. Four people survived the wreck. Mate John Smith was rescued the next morning by the Sacramento the lake was smooth when the propeller drew away from the island and all went well until about 9 o'clock when a heavy squall from the northeast, northeast struck the us, Smith told Plane Dealer then. The boat stood up well before it for a time and until the wheel chains parted. It doesn't sound like a good day.
1: Yeah, one of those they mentioned, that bar Argo. You remember that one because we talked about it, and I think um, Kevin actually dove on that one. Yeah,
0: he's been on that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, four thousand seven hundred and sixty two barrels of crude oil and chemical benz oil. But it it you know, it had been identified before, but it just was concern, became a concern when started leak But I'm really surprised they didn't uh, take the cargo out before then. But mm-hmm. then again, if there's no issue, why spend the money? Correct. Six million dollars. And then
0: the next story we have is from sportdiver.com, dive boat survival and etiquette guide. And if you go by the picture, the best way to be a good etiquette is to be a young female in a nice fitting wetsuit. Uh, it says, Do you know your patty offers a boat diver specialty course? It may seem silly, but boats come up in so many different sizes and configurations. The course was devised to help you learn tips, tricks, and correct behavior to enjoy and be safe on your boat dives. Whether you're diving in a small inflatable luxury live aboard, you may want to consider taking the course, especially if you're preparing for your first boat dive or live aboard trip, but in the meantime Sport Diver magazines it has a few steps. Um, so the, one of the first things they have is uh, things to consider before you go is pack boat clothes. And they're giving examples of a large floppy hat that keeps sun not only off your face but off your ears and the back of your neck. Our favorite is a sun hat with UV protection built on the fabric and chin strap of the lanyard. It's lightweight, washable, made from breathable nylon fabric. If you prefer a baseball cap, be prepared to apply sun, plenty of sunscreen in your ears and your neck. And to do it often, protect against wind, not to mention spray. It's critical to uh, staying warm and out of the way of the dive site, as well as on your way home. So pack at least a windbreaker if you're doing temperate water, or cold water diving. Pack a boat coat that's lined with fleece, which will keep you toasty warm. And look for one that comes with a hood. Um,
1: we know when the sun goes down, you want to have that.
0: Yeah. Now, on in the in the case of a uh, one thing is to is to know how long is the boat trip. Uh, I can't say that I've ever gone the flop large floppy hat route i mean that that sounds a little bit like uh, an attorney telling you something that you need to do certainly it's going to keep well, keep you more covered uh, but an appropriate sunscreen you know the, the the kind that matches your area and uh can be substituted
1: well you get out there and one of those inflatables doing a little side scanning for five six hours yeah you'll learn real quick to get a floppy hat
0: <laughs> yeah well and you have to be careful um uh, a little tangent here uh, is that there, not all shirts you wear will give you protection. And you know, sometimes some of the lighter mesh shirts, uh, the sun will go right through. And then also I've heard of snorkelers who are wearing like a white T-shirt that, uh, you know, they'll still burn their backs. Yeah, And I, what I like to do is I've got a, uh, it's like a kayaking coat. And uh, that's waterproof that I'll throw over. Or in our cases, when you're, you're riding out back, in the colder weather you just wear a wetsuit or a dry suit. You know, put it on at the dock and stay in it. And then the second item they have is invest a decent pair of sunglasses. They say it doesn't have to be an expensive pair, but get shades that meet ANSI general purpose standard 60% UVA protection, 95% UVB. Take care of them once aboard, keep them away from weights, seat benches, places where they could be knocked and thrown overboard. So, uh what I would recommend if you can do something like that and even regular glasses is have some sort of, uh, container. Um uh, sometimes well, that, put, that... The lanyard,
1: put the lanyard on them, like grab at work, take your glasses. So if you turn them off, you can still put them back on.
0: Yeah. But what they're saying is, uh, you know, if you, if you got sunglasses and you throw them, you've got a mesh gear bag, uh, it's just going to get uh, broken. So sometimes it's nice to have like a hard case for them. Uh, sometimes if you've got a, a case for your dive mask, you can swap your sunglasses for the dive mask and vice versa when you get back out.
1: And that's what I do with mine. Put them in the dive box. Yep. And uh, then Matt.
0: Yep. And then you have it. Uh, pack an extra towel. Take a second small towel for wiping your face, your exposure suit, your camera, and your first stage between dives. You'll use uh, you'll use your larger towel for drying yourself after your dives. Cami type camp towels work well. And, again, this depends on your environment. If you're in an area where it's super humid, uh, don't count on that towel drying off between dives. Up here, sometimes you can have enough time. Or uh, if you're on a boat and you've got enough room, uh, you can pack a, you know, a couple towels. You can have one for use in the boat. But then when you're getting into your, your final dry clothing, it's good to have a fresh dry towel to, to finish drying yourself off.
1: Have um, you ever dried off your first stage between dives?
0: My first stage, no.
1: That's what it says. Wipe in your face, suit, camera, and your first stage between dots. Dial-
0: nope. never. I've never. Why, why do I need to dry off my first stage?
1: I, I don't know. I just struck me as odd. I mean,
0: it, it, they I'm worried sure. about it frosting over. I, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. First stage. I now your second stage. I could see if you're, you know, kind. Yeah, you, know, like, you, you like to think that maybe that's more sanitary maybe your second stage, but yeah, I can't see your first stage.
1: Have you ever done either?
0: No, no, <laughs> I probably should sometimes. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I've, I've done the, uh, you can always tell when we're doing river dives, you know, the rookie mistake where you, you lay your, your gear. And, and then I look and my second stage is like over an anthill in the sand or something. <laughs> so so you're, you're looking at him going, God, I got to do a test breath. You know, so I might, you know, dunk it in the, the sanitary river. And then, uh, you know, and then breathe off at a couple of breaths. Uh, it says, don't forget your dry bag. A dry bag is is very nice to have. Uh, if you haven't seen one, go and do a Google search for it. It's usually a, a, water, a mostly waterproof material. And then just the way you fold it and it snaps, it, it will keep water out. It's, you're not going to bring it down to the bottom, but uh, if stuff splashes in the boat, it will certainly will keep it dry.
1: I, I do know that when we're on the Zodiacs, mm-hmm. you know, we have several in the club. If you don't take a, a dry bag, you will not have a dry towel. Correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because on a Zodiac, it's, you're so close to the water and just the, uh, if there's any sorts of wave action, every time the boat hits the wave action, you get a little bit of spray that comes up and 20 minutes of that and it's like you went swimming.
1: No, a dry bag is well worth the money.
0: Yep. And they're, and they're saying you want the kind, you don't want the kind with a zipper, you want the kind that of fold over. <laughs> Um, uh, so they say your, your shore clothes, a wall, the to big towel, uh, cell phone. If you're taking the cell phone out with you, it's a good place to put it in there. Uh, this says try not to put things you'll need sooner, such as masty fog or sunscreen. Well, I wouldn't put masty fog or sunscreen in there because I don't care if that gets wet. Yeah. It's only stuff. It's usually clothes, clothes or, or delicate electronics that I would put in there. Make sure it's one you can keep at your gear station. One where it stays inside dry no matter what the case. The boat's dry area is limited and non-existent. Yeah, like you said, a Zodiac, you're not going to have that. And then they say bring H2O and snacks when you book. Ask whether water and snacks are provided on a boat. If not, pack at least one water bottle, preferably a usable one, according to the magazine. It's always nice to bring something that can be shared with other passengers and a crew, which is true. You know, know, we're we're diving with friends, and many times there'll be uh, a cooler. So what what I'll do is I'll I'll pack my stuff in the cooler to bring, and then you check with the boat. You know, depending on the boat, there's some have built-in coolers, or sometimes the, the whoever's boat it is will have a cooler, and then you can just combine the ice uh, if if they're willing to do that. But it's you want to keep that hydration, especially if you're going to be doing multiple dives.
1: I, I've never been on a cattle boat, but all the time we go out with everybody else, there is always never less than one cooler that everybody has community drinks or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, most often we're going out, I go by Subway, I get my Subway sandwiches already, you toss them in there too. You're yeah. ready to roll. Yeah.
0: And then the number six item they have is seasick. It says it can happen to anyone, but if you're prone, remember to take anti-nausea medication like Dramamine at least 30 minutes before the boat departs. Train your eyes on horizon. stay away from diesel engine fumes. And then they have a link to an article where they have more tips on avoiding seasickness. Uh, let's see. Then they have. I also
1: recommend having taken the Dramamine other times before you get on the boat. Yeah, don't make don't, sure It works, and you have a good tolerance. Yeah,
0: uh, it's I, uh, that's uh, certainly advisable. Uh, I know sometimes, uh, like Jim Schultz, has brought uh, ginger on board the boat. Uh, that's supposed to be kind of like a natural seasickness remedy.
1: We've seen the guys used a wristband with the little pebble in it that goes to press on your hand. We've seen that. Yeah. Uh, you can always take the little blue purple pills or whatever it is some of the ladies have. Mm-hmm. It seemed to work. They're happy.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm pretty fortunate. It's rare for me to get seasick, but it can happen. I mean, I, you know, sometimes it can be triggered by what you've eaten earlier in the day, uh, not feeling well. If you're not hydrated, uh, and then certain smells can do it. Smells, conditions.
1: Uh. As a side note, I take that back. I have been on a cattle boat one time. Mm-hmm. It was uh, on the Geiger, and I think there was about 4,000 troops on it. Oh, in uh, A hurricane through the Atlantic out of Bramaha. Uh, yeah, I've been seasick.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that that's a cattle boat.
1: Just throw me over.
0: Yeah, yeah. The uh, Where I tend to to feel like I'm on my way to being seasick is if you got a lot of rocking. And then I'm doing something really fine motor skill. So I'm looking down, you know, say you were trying to thread a needle or something that would, you know, I start to go bleh, and I just have to, you know, get some fresh air, look at the horizon and it usually goes away. But yeah, don't, don't try any medication you haven't tried before. Uh, Cause you don't know how it's going to affect you either. So uh, a lot of people like Dramamine. I think there's some others. Uh, so on the boat, they said, be on time. Which is always good advice. You know, uh, many boats won't even wait for you. They're just going to tell you, hey, be here. Find out the departure time is given to show up or leave the dock. Adjust your schedule appropriately. Arriving early is fine, but when you arrive, ask for permission to board. The crew may still need time to prepare for the trip. Don't be the person holding up the boat's timely departure. Set up your gear as quickly as possible. Once you've been shown your gear station, ask the crew if it's okay to set up your gear. Every skipper has different rules. Some may prefer you set up immediately. Others may ask you to wait until the vessel's underway. Either way, once you've set up your gear, make sure to review your dive plan with your dive buddy and review basic hand signals, check his or her gear, and vice versa. Uh, Number three is locate equipment, uh, safety equipment. You should get a safety briefing. It is always a good idea to make a mental note of where the life jackets, the radio are, how to turn the radio on handheld VHF, flares, flashlights, first aid kits, etc. before entering the water to be informed of the dive recall signal. In the event of a serious emergency, if the crew does not give a safety briefing, politely ask for one. Uh, Find the rinse buckets. Uh, Water buckets for the deck are usually marked to indicate what they're for. Mask rinsing, camera rinsing, if they're not marked, ask the crew to stay organized. Don't spread out your dive gear or be a boat slob. Uh, keep it neatly organized. Your dive station, tucked away in a bag after your tank is in the station, deflate the BC, fold the straps, move the hose so your assembly lines take up as little room as possible. Not only is it courteous to your neighbor, it will prevent your gear from being damaged. Secure tanks so they don't fall on anyone's feet or gear. Remember, dive uh, dive gear, dry suit, under underwater underwear, dry suit underwear. Okay. Logbooks do not belong in the camera table. Ask the crew if there's a dry area you can store small items you don't want to put away, like sunglasses. Now, on this one, the stay organized, that's really a before-the-dive the type of item. Um, you know, mesh bags are nice. And what I like to do is have multiple bags that can fit into a larger bag. So I like to come on where I can, I can sling a large bag over my shoulder, and then I can carry my tanks, and I've got everything. And then as you're setting stuff up, you can, you're pulling stuff out of bags, and the bags are going back into other bags. So you've always got everything, like if I, I, I look at it this way, if I need to get out of the way or move, you know, something happens, everything's all contained. I've, I don't have 20 tiny containers or things all spread out over the boat. Uh, and that's a trick, you know, you know, when you're, when you're paying a dive boat money, you know, they kind of will put up with a little bit, you know, not a lot, but a little bit. But when somebody's inviting you on their boat and you're a guest, uh, you, you want to make it as easy for them as possible, so they invite you back. Uh, Pay attention to the dive briefings. You'll not only get valuable information about the dive site conditions, you also learn how the crew prefers you to enter next to water, whether you should remove only your fins or your tire kit at the ladder before boarding boarding, and where the anchor or mooring is located. And then seven is put away the cigarettes. There's little tolerance for cigarettes on dive boats. And then for getting off the boat, Help out if needed before getting off the boat. Ask the crew if you can do anything before taking off. Make sure you take your trash with you and take it last. Look around for any items, gear, or clothing you may have overlooked in packing up. Don't forget to tip the crew. If they've done a good job, a 10% of the cost for the trip is customary. If they did a great job, make it 15. Keep in mind that tipping the crew is not recommended everywhere. For business or casual reasons, ask ahead to the operator's policy regarding tipping. Sometimes you tip the boat crew directly, but often tipping is done in the divers or the dive shop office. So that way they keep all the money. And it doesn't make it to anybody. And I added that part there. Uh, then all members on the team share the tip, follow up these few tips and you'll discover what you have in a day of the water is better than any on land. So I don't know. That was a little sanitized of an article. Uh, and I think they missed a few things.
1: It's quite extensive though.
0: Yeah, it's a good, I think, I think if, uh, You're a fairly recent diver and you haven't done it as it gets you a good point. I keep on thinking we need to write some of these sort of articles because, you know, what this really needs is you need a checklist because that that always helps you, especially if you're first time or even experienced. I like to go over a checklist and see.
1: I think it's really good for those who have not been on them before or on a boat a lot. Mm -hmm. Those are good ideas because they may not have thought about it. After you've done it a couple of times, you know what you should know what to do. Yeah. Uh, the part I really like, if they emphasize it, is the briefing, safety briefing. That's for your safety. You should be listening to what they're saying, not playing with your gear. Um, and the, the recall aspect is very important. Depending on what current wave action is, you really want to pay attention. The, the, and, you know, I like the part about the recall. And the, what do you use for a recall?
0: And the dive briefing is not only for commercial boats. If you're four buddies going out, It's worth to take the time to go and talk about how you're going to handle things. Uh, You know, who's staying up on the boat while the others go down? If something happens, if you see a storm coming up, how are you going to recall the divers out of the water? Because you're now responsible as being the one on the surface of the boat to do that. Uh, Discuss what are some of the scenarios and how they should be handled. Somebody comes up 30 feet from the boat away from the tagline and starts... Saying you know calling for help, you know how are you going to respond that way? Um and then, Actually,
1: we talked about that in the dive club uh meeting before. Remember?
0: Yep. Yeah. Because that have. was
1: one of the issues. What if you know everybody likes to go down and dive, and occasionally you have somebody who will be a bubble watcher. But do they know how to use you know Channel Sixteen? Yeah. Do they know how to start the boat if yeah. it breaks anchor? Yeah. And that, then you need to come back. Yeah, that so, radio you need to point.
0: you you need to be able to call on that and at least. You don't have to do all the ten four type of codes, but you do need to know how to ask for help and know where you're at.
1: Yeah, you need to know how to turn it on and and what channel. Yep. And well, generally, even if you didn't, if you could turn it on, and somebody's going to tell you where to go. Yes. <laughs> In more ways than one, maybe. Yeah.
0: The, you You may get a tongue lashing when you get there when they get to you, but uh, at least you're now, able to If you got a problem,
1: it. it doesn't matter. You, yep. you need to oh, solve yeah. the problem.
0: Oh yeah. Yep. So well, okay, well let's. Uh, you have some good tips, and may- maybe we'll put together something someday. Uh, let's see. I think the the next two are not quite scuba the news. Uh, we have not uh, this is a Kickstarter project. And I think the—this is—is uh, this unique for French Kickstarters, that these are all— uh, of course, everybody in photos has to be 18, but young models showing this dive gear?
1: There's absolutely nothing wrong with this.
0: I don't all see, of those a,
1: are culturally culturally correct and gets the point across that you want to look at.
0: Is is that France? Is that what makes it culturally correct? Uh Seaglow affordable underwater breathing system for anyone hits Kickstarter. A team of developers based in Nice, France has created a new affordable and simple to use underwater breathing system that allows you to have 15 minutes under the waves on a single charge. Available in two different versions, the Seaglow I think that's how they pronounce it. Of course, I need to do it with a jacques Huchteau accent. 200 provi- provides up to 10 minutes of air at 200 bar or 3,000 PSI, while the larger Seagull 300 provides up to 15 minutes of air of 300 bar or 4,500 PSI. Watch a demonstration video to learn more about the Seagull's breathing system or compressor and compressor, which is used to recharge a diving air bottle when required. Uh, Seagull's... This week, taking up the Kickstarter crowdfunding site to raise the required funds it needs to make the jump into production, obtaining its pledge goal thanks to early bird backers with still 28 days remaining on its campaign. Available from 149 for super earlier birds, the Seagull 200 is available at a 55% discount until the end of the Kickstarter campaign. The larger Seagull 300 is available with a compressor at a discounted price of €559, Euros, 496 pounds with shipping expected to take place during the June 2018. Uh, For more information specifications, jump over to the official Kickstarter campaign page, by the links below, and then you go over there, and they have already met their Kickstarter campaign, so it's something that you're interested in. Uh, As much as you can feel secure about anything on Kickstarter, it looks like they've met the goal to actually go into production. Now, what I am skeptical about is what is the quality of the compressor that you are getting for that price?:
1: Well, at the start, you know it's a spare air, basically canister. That's what it looks like.
0: It's a spare air, but they're, but they're sell, they're selling you the compressor.
1: Is that really the spare air? the spare air go up to 4,500 psi? That's what I was wondering.
0: And then these little this little tiny compressor, is that really rated for that
1: pressure? And it's battery-operated or uh, electric, small electric. I don't know. We'll have to look up the specs on it. But so, this goes back to when we were talking about spare and baby bottles. Yeah. Know, does, well, it, does it ever reference they need scuba training?
0: Well, they they do. When you look at the Kickstarter, they do give you an online course. It says the the online scuba course, Get Basic Knowledge Before You seagal. Underwater good practices. I check before I dive. What should I do if something's wrong? Like I drown. Yeah, I, uh, nothing. (laughs) Jeez. I try try not to get in trouble. It's like, this scares me because they're selling it as you can train yourself how to scuba dive. And then what's the quality of the, of the, because you got a first stage and a second stage. No, no, you can't buddy breathe on this. You know, you don't have any redundancy.
1: I'll carry two of them.
0: Yeah, carry two of them, or just or just or, just, tra- or just travel with a model and have her carry two for you.
1: Yeah, I'm just curious about the uh, filter system for it also.
0: Yeah, well, yeah.
1: do how- they give you instruction on keeping it out of the exhaust of the diesel from the boat?
0: Yeah, no fart fills, but you'll figure that out on your own. Uh, but I, you know, I get aggravated with the little tiny compressors you plug in the cigarette lighter of your car to fill your tire, and that only needs to go to 35 <laughs> pounds. I'm plugging that thing in. Yeah, I can go inside for two cups of coffee. Come out, and it's barely got the the uh, the tire up the air. And that's all. I can't imagine trying to get a, a tiny pony bottle up to uh, three thousand or forty five hundred pounds. Yeah, I I I just hope they've done their research so that they really know that they can that they can do it. And then here at the bottom, wonder they say what
1: the hydro, I do know what the hydro frequency is for those.
0: I don't know. Hopefully they're stamped and approved. Let's see. This is a risk and challenge. The Seagal project started at the end of 2016. The goal of creating the simplest and cheapest underwater breathing system for months later. The first prototype is born after hours and hours of testing and development resulted in high quality product usage. By all, the certification process took us a long time, but now it's complete. We are sure to be able to guarantee a high quality product and deliver our backers within a reasonable time. In case an unexpected delay concerning the production or delivery, we'll notify our backers and give them an estimated delivery date. Uh, Let me see the frequently asked questions. I wonder if any of those are going to be reasonable. Uh, Can I use seagull if I'm not a regular scuba diver? You can use uh, seagull. Even if you're not a scuba diver, you're advising non-divers stay in a shallow depth between zero and three meters or 10 feet and learn to save the safety instructions before diving see i think some of the toughest diving can be you know the zero to 15 feet i mean that's where you have all the the rapid change in pressure you know if i, I you can stay down deep for quite a while and i don't seem to feel much in my ears but you're popping up and down at that 10 feet level you can hurt yourself and then they say, "What about safety?" And they go into some marketing spin. Well, I got I-
1: on the one with the videos, which is a lot better than the static shows. Mm-hmm. So static pictures. Did you go
0: there? No, I, I. If I do that, we'll kill the internet stream. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, all the hamsters will have been tired by then, and they, they'll stop running on the treadmill. Uh, so, what what do you see in that?
1: Oh, uh, the young ladies are swimming oh, at the yeah. equipment. <laughs>
0: I've, yeah, I, I figured they they hired them not only for their still photos but also for the video.
1: Yeah. I'm just looking at some of the different setups I can sell here. You know, how much you get for what, you know, if you pledge five forty nine you get Do you one you a- go, two hundred, a wearing system, whatever that oh, the um, to keep the bottle on your chest, a uh, compressor and the online scuba course packing.
0: Yeah. Now, how much for a date with the models is that is that one of the packages? Say that again? How much for the date with one of the models is that one of the packages?
1: I think that's the one that says private thing. Private oh. chatter. Thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I should go there, though.
0: No. No. Uh, your ISP is keeping track of you. Uh, each tank. Well, that's why I'm on the black net. Yeah. Each tank is equipped with a manometer gauge, which will allow you to know how much air is left, how deep can I go, uh, see, they talk about how much air is in there because it that that air th- right there. If you're somebody who's more my size, yeah, you're not getting that. And I think even those models are a little tall for the the time that they're quoting for error. I think uh, I would divide that. Well, during- looking
1: at some of the pictures of the chest capacity of a few of these young ladies, uh, <laughs> that's probably correct. And I don't want you going to this page, mod because. You're Well, I am going to say, what? (laughs) Never mind, I'll just keep this one to myself.
0: During the hundreds of tests done with the Seagull 200, the average autonomy was 7 to 8 minutes. However, you control your breath and stay near the surface, you can reach an autonomy of 10 minutes. Concerning Seagull 300, the average autonomy is 11 to 12 minutes, and controlling your breath can reach 15 minutes.
1: Well, they've got some interesting videos there. This one here is called B. James Bond. And he's uh, with a DPV, a yeah. very nice one. So, and if if it's you got some thrust on it, but he's pulling himself with that on, then he's got two uh, models, people hanging onto his feet. Yeah, so uh, it's quite interesting. Good news.
0: Yeah, uh, i I would trust this a little bit more if they didn't go so heavy on the glitzy model. Yeah, it's getting people to click on the stuff, but I would rather it be somebody who actually. Did some diving, but the, the thing here is it's it's a gimmick. I mean, if you're really that interested, spend the time. You'll be farther ahead by going with real gear.
1: Uh, I really would like to look at the compressor stats, and that's what I was looking for.
0: Yeah, so their, their goal was 12,379, so it's probably in euros, and it just translated. But they're already at 38,868 with 66 baggers and 26 days to go. So, uh, I mean, it's it's not something that I, I think I'm interested in. Uh, I, I like it a little bit better than a spare air, you know, because at least it has a hose. But, I, you know, I don't know what kind of uh, engineering they've got in the first and second stage. Because really, it's, for the price, it's, you know, a little bit on the cheap side.
1: I like the spare if I'm flying, especially around the lake. Because if you dump it. You're going to be upside down or something. Yeah. And it'd be nice to have that extra three minutes of breathing time.
0: Well, on the compressor side makes it interesting because I think what they're trying to address is if you go take this into a die shop and say, fill her up, they're going to want to see your C card. So they're kind of getting around that uh, by selling the compressor. Yeah. So that's our potential cool scuba gear. And then I've got our, an article which we'll have linked in the show notes, which is our almost uh, shipwreck of the week, uh, mostly because it hasn't been found, so we can't go dive it. But uh, the shipwreck is the Baltimore-bound USS Cyclops. It vanished 100 years ago, and its fate remains a mystery. And this article was in the Washington Post. The author is Tim uh, Prudent. And he he says, there should have been a clue, a distress call on the radio, a shard of a wooden lifeboat, or even a sailor's cap. How could 309 men in their ship, a naval vessel bigger than a football field, just vanish? 100 years ago, Tuesday, the USS Cyclops is due to steam up the Chesapeake Bay and dock in Baltimore at what is now Port Covington. The the ship still hasn't shown up. Its eerie absence and enduring mystery fueling fantastic theories in the Bermuda Triangle, giant squid, and German spies. The truth is no one knows what became of the Cyclops or its clue. Sailors such as Thomas Lee of West Baltimore, Adam Sherwitsky of Canton, and Bert Asper, a doctor who practiced at Shepherd Pratt. There are no ceremony for them. Tuesday, memorials from the, Pr- the Prometheus, Plask Collier that hauled coal, have faded. The only monument to the ship is a plaque that hangs in France." And yet, in its era of high-tech discovery, when explorers have found World War II cruise ships in the Philippine Sea and aircraft carrier lost in the Coral Sea, when forensic anthropologists conclude that bones found in Pacific Island probably belong to Amelia Earhart, the only hope returns is the cyclops might yet be found. In terms of loss in life, and ship of size is probably the largest mystery left unsolved, says James Delgado the renowned underwater explorer. Built in Philadelphia, steel-hauled an immense of the Cyclops splashed in the Navy's biggest, fastest-fuel ship. At 540 feet long, 65 feet wide, the ship could haul 12,500 tons of coal and steam at 15 knots. Its winches could send 800-pound bags of anthracite along cables. I'm not familiar what that is. Huge clamshell buckets could lift two tons of coal in a single mouthful. A monster collier. newspapers called it a floating coal mine. Launched in May 1910, the ship is designed to refuel the Navy fleet, both working grueling and dangerous. The coal in the cargo hold is prone to catching fire. Cable snacked, buckets full, tumbled to the deck. Sailors steamed out of Norfolk down the Atlantic coast to U.S. bases in Cuba, Haiti, Puerto Rico. With the U.S. entry in World War I in April 1917, a Cyclops outfitted with 50 caliber deck guns delivered doctors and medical supplies from the John Hopkins Hops Hospital to St. Nazareth, France. Months later, ships arrived in Brazil to load ten thousand tons of manganese ore, denser and heavier than coal. The ore for steel making was unfamiliar cargo for the crew. The heavily laden vessel voyaged to Barbados resupplied for nine days at sea, then steamed off for the steel yards of Baltimore. It was March fourth, nineteen eighteen. The Cyclops was never seen again no no uh debris, no oil slicks, no reply in the radio. The ship had just vanished on uh, June nineteen eighteen then Assistant Secretary Franklin D. Roosevelt announced his ship and its 309 men were resumed lost at sea. It was the greatest loss of life unrelated to combat in U.S. naval history. There has been no more baffling mystery in the annals of the Navy than the disappearance last March of the USS Cyclops Navy Secretary Josephine Daniels wrote. There has not been a trace of the vessel. The long-continued vigilant search for the entire region proved utterly futile. Speculation swirled. Could a heavy ore have ruptured the hull, sinking the ship instantly? Did unfamiliar cargo leak fumes that poisoned the crew? U-boat torpedoes could have sunk the ship, but there was no debris. Rough seas could have swamped it, but there was no storm and no distress call. German raiders could have captured a ship, taking the crew and hostages steam home with their prize, but Cyclops lacked fuel for a transatlantic voyage. Wilder theories have emerged of sea monster, mutinies, meteorites, the loss of the Cyclops, along with the later disappearance The five Navy torpedo bombers uh, known as Flight 19 gave rise to the ship's swallowing lore of the Bermuda Triangle, a myth roundly debunked today. And they go on a little bit more in some detail, but uh, I I think someday we'll find this. This is like too big to not be found.
1: All the Bermuda Triangle, not where it was reported to have disappeared.
0: That's what they're saying. And then, Mac, did you see that article that I posted on uh, the Facebook page?
1: I don't know what article was that? Did uh, you posted on the Facebook?
0: That that was the one in uh, on the UFO.
1: Oh, you meant about the aircraft. Yeah. Yes, but I have seen one better than that. Oh. That's two of them chasing with actual video of the interception. Oh. And really? their conversation saying, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> As it disappeared from sight.
0: Yeah, because it, it's it's interesting when they track these items. Assuming that there's been no doctoring, because now you can doctor video and you you wouldn't be able to tell. But uh, that was on our Facebook page. And also, if you follow us on Twitter, you'd have gotten a link to the article. Uh, but it's one you have to see. If you're into that sort of thing.
1: Hey, if you're living in, by Lake Michigan, you got to. Well, it, this is a hotbed of uh, UFO sighting. Yeah, you, Actually, you, 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 New Buffalo and up north a ways that were part of the triangle, too. Yeah, because you got
0: to get ready for when that, you know, the alien base, you know, because it, it keeps opening and closing. So do you have uh, you know, a safety tip this week?
1: Well, I do have one item here I thought I'd talk about for a little bit. And I'll continue this through over the next couple of our podcasts. But uh, this one here is on aquatic decision, aquatic decision-making. At the core of our ability to dive safely is our judgment and decision-making ability. To exercise good judgment and make safe aquatic decisions requires a continuous assessment of three vital factors, the environment, our equipment, and our own abilities and limits. Training and experience are the key elements in making these assessments, but our experience in training and daytime diving does not necessarily prepare us for night excursion under the waves. Each of these factors take on new dimensions as daylight fades and shadows grow longer. Water conditions and diving environments considered within our abilities for a day dive become much more difficult to negotiate at night. Our familiarity with our equipment becomes more critical when diving in darkness, and additional equipment is needed to ensure proper vision, communication, and navigation, both underwater and on the surface. Finally, our own abilities and limits vary much like the daily cycles of night and day. So the bottom line is be careful of, And this doesn't just apply to night diving. It's you start going deep and quite often if you're really deep and especially in the older days, you lose the visibility anyway. It's like diving at night. Yeah. And about the only other comment, you did see one of our, um, uh, individuals looking at the program commented on, did we start an hour earlier?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're on us daylight savings time. So, which I'm trying to figure out what we're really trying to save by that mess. Uh. I, I don't like either of them. I don't like it when we fall back. I don't like it when we spring forward. It just just keep it, and yeah, doesn't, doesn't doesn't help. At least doesn't help me. And I and I I'm see sure there's there's I'm start, sorry, Go ahead. I was gonna say there's starting to be a movement to repeal that. There's a few areas where they're just gonna say we're not gonna follow it anymore.
1: Well, like that. You've seen the meme there with the Indian and in the blanket. Oh yeah. You know. If you cut two inches off the top and you sew it to the bottom, doesn't make it any longer.
0: No. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's I, a cute. One. I like that one.
1: I had just looked up, and uh, now I can't find it because I hit the wrong button. But we had talked about those uh, spare airs, similar mm-hmm. to what we just looked at, and one yeah. was called snorkel. Yep. And that was two hundred dollars, but that was a hand pump. Remember,
0: <laughs> we talked yeah.
1: about that too. We yeah. we weren't able to yeah. see what kind of compression ratio. And how exhausted you'd get pumping up something to two thousand pounds of that. I, I think
0: that I think the average use for one of those is one and a half times. <laughs> you use you you bother to pump it up completely one time, and then on the second try you do it about halfway, and then you say, "Oh, forget it."
1: So there there are several out there. So it's interest. I uh, think the only the key one on the other one must have been the compressor.
0: Yeah, and you wonder like if the these spec. these are all the same company.
1: Just repackage it and resell it. Yeah.
0: Hire, hire new models. <laughs> oh, so yeah, th- thank you. We had some people come into the uh, chat room late, and that's what we were talking about, the daylight savings time. So uh, thank you, Derek, for coming on in. Um, let's see. Did anybody get any diving in? I think it's been, um, the river is probably still just a little bit quick. I saw Kevin last week and tried to get into Lake 16, but it still had a little bit too much skim ice on it to be able to give it an safe. attempt. Yeah, you yeah, could. Yeah, be safe. Yeah, the, the, the middle was open, but you, you had to swim quite a bit, and then that, it's not a good situation. That, well, that, that
1: kind of skim ice can cut your dry suit really quick.
0: You cut your dry suit. You can't break through it from underneath, even if it's less than a quarter inch. That's a lot stronger than you think it is.
1: Uh, but he did get a dive in, though. Oh, did he? Where'd he go? Yeah, went went to the piers. Ah. got there before the meeting. I, I missed that part. And then uh, Jim and I got out doing a little side scanning in the river, which was interesting. I cannot believe that where we were at, it was three feet lower now than when it was two weeks ago. Three feet lower. And it's still over the banks where we were at.
0: Oh, yeah. I see all the side creeks. Like Hickory Creek now is probably at its normal level.
1: Yeah, the one down here is near, you know, the one you pass over yourself down there in the dip. That looks pretty much back to normal, but uh, I know the Paw River, St. Joe River, especially in certain areas, ain't.
0: I think they're just letting all the water run out. They got all the dams still open, trying to recover.
1: Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen anything on uh, downtown Niles yet. I do know that we've had some feedback somewhere. I read something that we're getting a lot of people like anxious to get into the river.
0: Oh, you know it. If you're if if you got that bottle fever where you want to do some picking, you know that's. There's going to be some fresh uh, hunting going on.
1: Yeah. I, I want the water to go away a little bit down, you know, down a little bit and, and keep that current up to get all the the bad water out and all the debris washed someplace else.
0: Yeah. But you're, you're, I feel pretty confident that the leaves are gone.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, with it.
0: Yeah. So someplace in Lake Michigan is, uh, you know, 400 metric tons of, uh, of lead debris that, the uh, been flushed out to the river if you look at that uh, on cleveland road there where you can see the uh, not not cleveland road um there when you're heading over to scottsdale okay there's that that ravine there yeah and you you know, because we don't have leaves or anything out yet you can see the va- the floor of the valley where the creek snakes mm-hmm. and you can see sand and silt on top of the land where normally it'd be dark dirt yeah. you know that it it just it didn't bother following the the course of the of the creek it just went over everywhere and there's a lot of silt and sediment that was in the water and it settled so you can kind of see s- some sandbarish type of structures
1: i'm very curious to see how much undercutting we have under cur- undercurrent or cut undercutting of the the side bank yeah. uh where we're at in a few parts of the river uh it's extremely noticeable and you have root balls that are now exposed that means you could get under the tree and get caught mhm
0: you certainly so want to I'm want to really be looking yeah. Be careful. You don't want to get caught up in something like that. But you've you've seen how that sometimes where some of the good bottles are too.
1: True, but a couple of these places that looked like the embankment was really sketchy. So if you went to the undercut and did a little something stupid, or somebody topside somehow uh-huh. messed up on the side of the bank, and you got that to sort of roll back down, have a little avalanche. Oh yeah. that would be that'd Ruin
0: your day. That would be a that would be bad. Your day and a little bit more, yeah. So it's we, annoying. yeah, what we really need is a now is a good windstorm to topple a bunch of those over if they're about ready to go.
1: Like I said, it's going to be interesting, and I'm looking forward to getting out in the river. Yep, but I got to have somebody to with me to zip up the dry suit.
0: <laughs> Get Give me
1: another up. month, though, maybe it'll be a little warmer. Actually, the water temperature has changed. Uh, Lake Michigan and certain areas was 38 to 40 degrees.
0: Wow, well, yeah, we're on an upward swing. I mean, this is. This is the time we get some clear weather. You can get out there in Lake Michigan.
1: Well, the river was getting up to be 40-something. Wow. So I I like, you know, I get to 50, I'm back in the wetsuit if I have to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it'll be too long. We're we're, we're on the, the stretch now. Oh, yeah. So before we get to that time of the show, is there anything you want to plug?
1: Well, not really a plug, but if you're a local, you know, we've got the uh, open house at Wolfs Marine. And that'll be Saturday and Sunday. Come on down and say hi. Uh, a lot of the muddies, when they do show up, they do have their colors. so you can tell us, tell who we are. That could be good or bad.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So. If we didn't take somebody off really bad, it's not bad. Yeah.
0: Yep, so and be there's
1: good food, too.
0: Yeah. Always oh, 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 some snacking they be doing.
1: Oh, not just snacking. They're, they have a, they set out a little buffet there, uh, both on Saturday and Sunday. So it's more than popcorn and uh, cookies this time, and the prices on a lot of the dive gear are very, very good. As a side note, uh, I tried out one of those um, suits that he got, the uh, ones from the Coast Guard, the big red ones, and it, the ones with the flotation gear in them. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I if I were going to be any kind of tending a lot, you know, for diving during the ice, I would buy one of those. That is absolutely nice. Uh, we met some other people on the river who are also wearing them. Uh, they had a little newer version with bladders in the top half with an inflatable hose. So if you went in, you could at least inflate that part too. Okay. I was toasty out there. That was a very nice suit. Almost tempted to buy one. And if you're a kayaker and less listening, you want to go down there. He's got some really, really super deals on some uh, used vests, which would be ideal for that. Already come whistles and everything. Nice. Actually, I was going to say we also have that uh, meet and greet coming up, don't we? When's that? I think the Great Lakes Wrecking Crew. I oh, think yeah. it was the first yeah. weekend in May, which is four through seven. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's going to be at Gilboa or White Star this year, though. Yeah, yeah, that's that's going to be coming up as well. Yep, and Bob is back from uh, Hawaii, and it, you looked at a lot of his pictures. They were fabulous.
0: Oh, he he, he keeps getting better.
1: Yep. So plus, I'm going blame you,
0: it on the camera. Yeah, oh, plus, plus you have to have the fish to put in front of the camera as well. You're not going to quite you see those.
1: Nice shots, daytime and nighttime.
0: Well, and we've also had a little bit of activity on the website, so head on the on over to the website. You can see show notes from previous episodes, uh, download some of those, and make sure you subscribe however you're listening to the program. That, that helps us as well. If you like the show, go ahead and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. Uh, and tell your friends, if you're new to diving and you're enjoying the show, uh, you know, why not infect somebody else with it? So I say we are to that time of the show. Are you ready?
1: I'm just sitting here my hands on the sides of the chair. I'm ready. Okay.
0: A talking dog is for sale. Man sees the sign. Uh, he rings the bell to the house and the owner appears and tells him the dog can be viewed in the back garden. Man sees a very nice looking black Labrador retriever sitting there. He asks the dog, do you really talk? Yes, the Labrador replies. After recovering from the shock of hearing the dog talk, the man asks, So tell me your story. The Labrador looks up and says, Well, I discovered that I could talk when I was pretty young. I wanted to help the government, so I joined the SAS. In no time at all, they had me jetting from country to country, sitting in rooms with spies and world leaders because no one imagined that a dog would be eavesdropping. I was one of the most valuable spies for eight years, but then jetting around really tired me out, and I knew I wasn't getting any younger. So I decided to settle down. I signed up for a job at Heathrow to do some undercover security work, wandering near suspicious characters and listening in. I uncovered some incredible dealings and was awarded several medals. I got married and had a few puppies, and now I'm just retired. The man is amazed. He goes back to the house and asks the owner how much he wants for the dog. Ten quid, the owner says. Ten pounds? But this dog's absolutely amazing. Why on earth are you trying to sell him so cheaply? Because he's a liar. He's never been out of the garden. I'd go 11. (laughs) 11 quid. (laughs) Yeah, I I think maybe they just don't appreciate uh, talking spy dogs over there.
1: I suppose. I'm still bummed out that I couldn't buy that submarine last week. (laughs) My daughter was bummed. She's ready to, you know, put in some money also.
0: Oh, uh, so it it ended up not turning out?
1: No, it, it was sold.
0: So on that note, go out there and get wet.
1: And stay safe.